Hello and welcome to the first inaugural episode of Escaping the Echo Chamber podcast with me, Mark Chappell. My first guest is Dr. Amy Johnson, PhD. Amy is a coach, author and speaker who shares a groundbreaking new approach that helps people find true lasting freedom from unwanted habits via insight rather than willpower. Amy has written two books, Being Human and The Little Book of Big Change, The No Willpower Approach to Breaking Any Habit. Amy's also been regularly featured on the Steve Harvey Show and Oprah.com, as well as the Wall Street Journal and Self magazine. If you'd like to know more about Amy's work, then please just check out the show notes and all the links will be there. Right, here's to the conversation. Okay, so I'm now joined by Dr. Amy Johnson. Hello, Amy. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. Honestly, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I'm afraid you are the first guest I've ever had, so you'll have to be patient with me. Well, I'm honored to be the first one. Thank you. So, Amy, you're a coach, uh, a social psychologist. Is that what your PhD is in? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And an author as well. And you run a coaching school. Yes. Yeah. I train coaches and I, um, and I also work with lay people with habits and anxiety. Ah, fantastic. So what came first? Was it the psychology or the coaching? The psychology came first um, because I think when I started in psychology, there was no such thing as coaching <laughs> or, or if there was, you know, definitely was not well known. It was maybe more in business and like other areas of life. Um, and I knew forever, like kind of literally forever that I wanted to figure out people and work with people and know how people thought and, you know, how our experience worked. Um, and so the obvious path at that time for me was psychology. So I, I studied psychology, um, kind of formally, you know, and, and I loved it. It was interesting, but I always, knew there was more to it than what we were learning in that sort of traditional sense. You know, I knew there was more even beyond the brain. I knew there was much more than what we could ever study in a lab. Um, And I knew I didn't want to work with people in a way that kind of treated them as if they are a collection of problems that we need to fix and solve. You know, like, you know, psychology, traditional psychology is just very much modeled after the medical model, which is like you're sick and let's give you something to quickly get you back to what we call normal. And I don't think that applies to human beings and the mind and our feelings at all. Um, And I probably wouldn't have said that, you know, like that 15 years ago, but there was just this sense of, yeah, something's not quite right here. Um, And then... And so like, as I started to kind of approach working with people, there was this new thing called coaching, which was approaching people. It wasn't as deep as psychology for sure, but it was approaching people as if they're okay and kind of looking forward. And that's really just what, what drew me to it is it at least didn't, um, yeah, didn't start with this assumption that you're broken and you need me to try to fix you. I think that's such a beautiful way to start any relationship with a person. Um, whether it be coaching therapeutic or any other way and I think there is a tendency now that I see probably in psychology and and even maybe it's crept into some areas of coaching that we are fundamentally broken or damaged or bruised at least and Mm -hmm. we have to kind of work through all this before we can actually get to fulfilling our potential we have to sort out all our problems before we 
work on potential. And I think this is partly what drew me to talking to you. I've read on your biography that you obviously had your own challenges with anxiety, severe anxiety, and um, bulimia, and binge eating. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I, um, you know, this is a huge part of what also helped me see that the traditional ways just aren't really doing it. So I I was just like a very anxious kid. I had all kinds of anxiety and, and no one really um, knew what it was or, you know, like, oh, that's just Amy. She just worries a lot or whatever. When now in hindsight, I can kind of look back and see that, you know, there was a lot of worrying a lot and thinking a lot in my family as there is in a lot of families. And we, we just kind of, you know, model things and pick up what we see. And so I for sure uh, was an anxious kid and a worrier and all of that and never just figured that was my personality. Um, and then that really came uh, to a peak when I was in graduate school and I started having panic attacks and was pretty bad off with anxiety for a good two years. Um, and then I got some traditional therapy, which is again, at that time, the only thing I knew to do. Uh, and it was kind of helpful. It helped me see you know, that, wow, my mind tells these really extreme stories about what's going to happen and I'm about to die and all of this. It was super simple. And, you know, and then just looking back and saying, a therapist saying, has that happened? And clearly it hadn't because I was sitting there alive. <laughs> so it's like it, it really, you know, it really just in very subtle little ways kind of helped me see, yes, man, this helmet of scary thinking is so thick and so real. But but I can step outside of that a little bit and see that that's just my mind making stuff up. So that was, um, it was helpful, but it, it didn't, it didn't really go. It, it always felt like it was help and therapy for panic attacks. And, and I think that's how it was packaged and given to me. And that's for sure how I saw it, you know, like this is for your panic attacks. So in some funny way, it's like my mind never, never like generalized and saw it as, no, this is just how all experience works. I just thought it was about panic attacks. So then I stopped having panic attacks, but I still felt anxious a lot. And as a way to cope with that anxiety, now I see, I started all kinds of food-related rituals and behaviors um, that stuck around for most of eight years. And so... It's interesting, like, you know, when we look at that, talk about it in the way we were talking already about like traditional psychology versus seeing things a lot deeper is in those moments at that time, I would have said, because again, I was in this, this uh, PhD psychology program, I would have said, yeah, I had generalized anxiety and then I had panic disorder and then I had binge eating disorder or whatever, like it all looked so separate and it's so interesting now to be able to back up and see, no, it was all the exact same thing all along beyond those labels and diagnoses and how it was showing up. What it all comes down to is I was feeling some feeling that I was not comfortable with. And I either worried about it and it was generalized anxiety, or I really freaked out about it and it was panic attacks, or I ate a bunch of stuff or decided to starve myself to not feel it, which was an eating disorder, but it's all the exact same thing at the end of the day. So that experience for me, like going through all, you know, trying to treat them as separately and then, and then really waking up to the fact that it's all the same. Um, again, yeah, it's why I work with people the way I do now. It's, it's been, it's been really, uh, 
really huge for just how I see life. Before we go on to sort of your new paradigm that you took on that changed your life and which you now share with others, I just want to ask you another question. Do you think that psychology has gone into the realms of pathologizing the human condition? That totally. we all, yeah, <laughs> like we look at the DSM and it's, you know, you, you could diagnose yourself with just about everything at some point in your life. And now you have sub disorders. So, you know, even if you don't tick all the boxes, you can have at least a bit of one and another. What are your thoughts on that kind of model of psychology? Yeah, I think it, um, I think it's really damaging, but you know, it also, it's weird because for me at that at those, that time of my life, whenever I would get a new diagnosis, I actually felt better. And I think that's really true for a lot of people. I felt like, oh, okay, this makes sense. You know, like, okay, what I'm experiencing, there's a thing, there's a name for it. They'll give me some treatment or medication or whatever, and I'll make it go away. It was, you know, still a very pathological way of seeing it. But it's like those labels and those buckets, they, they have a bit of relief, but that's only because we don't understand how experience, we don't understand that it's all safe and okay anyway. We, like you're saying, like as a, as a society, as a planet, I think we have come to fear and not understand and pathologize all of our experience, all of us kind of in a way, we're just kind of conditioned that way. And it for sure shows up in psychology. So it is funny. What you said is so right. Like you can flip through that giant book and I bet there's almost nothing that somebody had that we all haven't felt at some point in our life mm-hmm. now maybe not the three to five times a week or whatever their criteria is you know but i mean shoot i've had like crazy paranoid thoughts i've had everything i think we all have and when it looks like a problem it's just going to show up differently for us i absolutely agree with that um i, I even see that now with instagram where there are posts like if you feel x y and z you may have this unresolved issue or this or this issue. And it's yeah. now even it's beyond like a clinical diagnostic book. It's become like Instagram posts where we can just label ourselves. And and I think you're absolutely right. You say that it brings an element of relief because we think, oh, yes, we can now understand this thing. And there's maybe a treatment or a process or a drug. But ultimately, I find that these I found with clients that these become blocks that they initially give initial relief, but then mm-hmm. it becomes, oh, I can't do that because I've got this condition or I can't do that. And often I would say that people are now self-diagnosing these things as well with sort of Dr. Google and a bit of Instagram kind of psychology, what I call it now. So I think it is, it's a pernicious problem because it seems like it's enhancing the mental health trend, right? I, I wonder if it's causing more damage in the long run. Uh, but that's yeah. just a, a personal thought. So how did you get to this new idea of psychology, which you now share with other people? What happened there? So it really was um, helpful for me first. So I, you know, again, at this point, like I'm, you know, struggling with the seating disorder, but I'm also uh, a trained psychologist. I'm also a coach. I was working as a coach and I was helping people to some extent, but I couldn't help myself. My tools, all my coaching tools and all of that weren't working on me. Um, and I, and so I was always looking, you know, I'm always, and still I'm just trying to uh, 
be at the cutting edge of everything professionally, and as I'm sure you are too, to like just help our the people we help the best we can. But it was like a full time job at that point because I was also trying to help myself at the same time. And what I came across was um, a couple things. One, an understanding of um, a deeper understanding that was new to me about how our brain works. And it was specific to eating disorders, but it wasn't. So the the packaging of it was, which is why I was attracted to it. But oh my gosh, I basically kind of saw that, hey, when your brain is screaming anything at you over and over again, in my case, these urges around food, but same with when it was anxiety, same if it's intrusive thoughts, if it's just insecure thoughts, anything, everybody's mind screams stuff at them over and over at times. It's, It's just this natural, normal. It's our brain trying to help us. It's giving us this thought that in and of itself doesn't mean anything. We don't have to listen to it. It isn't particularly helpful or else it probably wouldn't be screaming. We'd just be doing it if it was helpful. It's our mind screaming something at us. And we get so wrapped up in it. We take it seriously. We think it's personal and we give it all this attention and then we become afraid of it. And then what does that do? The machine sees that there's all this attention placed on it and the machine spits it out more and more. So it was so like, I mean, that's so basic, but it's crazy because it, I just have really huge insights just in hearing it put in that term, those terms, because what was different about it, I think, is that it wasn't, it wasn't coming again like, oh, here's a disorder that you have to solve. Here's a problem that needs to be fixed. It was like, oh no, your brain, no matter what you're feeling in life, your brain's working fine. You just don't understand how it's working. You just think it's it's broken, you know, which was giant. So I could see that, yes, I was constantly thinking about what to eat or not eat or all of that. So I was teaching my brain to keep that conversation going. And if I could begin, or as I did, just begin to see that as just a conversation a machine was having that was not about me or my life, and it wasn't going to make me, there wasn't a right or wrong, the a happy, a less happy option. It was just literally like a machine having a conversation. It just took so much of the power away from it, you know? And so that was a big part of it. And that really started to help me kind of wake up to a lot of what we're talking about in this conversation. Like, wow, this stuff's not a, we're not a bunch of messed up people walking around. We just have brains that work fine that we misunderstand. And how did you come across this way of looking at the, the world? Did you go and see a particular teacher? Did you get to a point with your sort of anxiety and eating that you just realized that you weren't getting anywhere? What kind of led you to seek something fresh out? Yeah. Um, so that brain explanation, I actually read in a book called Brain Over Binge, uh, which was just written by a woman, her name's Katherine Hansen, but she was probably in her maybe mid twenties when she wrote the book and she just had bulimia and her story was exactly the same as mine in a lot of ways. And she kind of had these insights herself. And, and so that was the first, that was one huge step. And again, that I don't, what I share now is bigger and we can talk about it, but that, that was one huge Mm. step, you know, that was like, wow, just that brain piece. And and that just came about, again, because I just could, would read and take in anything I could get my hands on. If someone wrote a book called Brain Over Binge, I was going to read it because <laughs> that's just where I was at that time of my life. 
it was huge. It was so incredibly helpful. And that book and Catherine's work has helped a ton of people. And I love it because she's, again, she's not a psychologist. She has no formal education in any of this stuff. She's just a really smart woman who had some insights about her own issue and spent years writing a book about it just, just for the sole purpose of helping other people. Um, so from there, though, with these brain insights, I was always, you know, again, seeking. And I actually had a client at that time who uh, told me to look in the direction of this thing called the three principles, which is not really about the brain. It's actually about who we are beyond our brain. So kind of what I saw in that is a lot, again, of what we're saying that, that our, our machinery, our physical bodies, the form of life, like a tree, a house, a physical body, a brain, these are things of form and they, they do what they do. Like they deteriorate, they do get issues. They, you know, they die, they get diseases, like all kinds of stuff happens to form. But when we live in the world of form and we're constantly just focused on form and everything looks like it's right or wrong, broken or healthy, you know, like that's the world I lived in before. And it just, it's kind of messy, <laughs> but, but what this under, what I kind of saw early on in this bigger spiritual understanding is that that's just how form is and that there's another place to look that we're all healthy by nature. And we're just feeling this experience moving through us, coming to life within us. And when we are staring at form and we hang on every little thought and feeling that moves through us, it's going to be a mess. But when we can see kind of what the brain thing showed me, oh, that's just a brain doing what a brain does. This is just a human being having thoughts and feelings that are all over the place. I, they're not mine. I don't have to make sense of them. It's okay to be really happy in the morning and then feel horrible by the afternoon. It doesn't mean anything. It, like the spiritual side of it just helped really helped blow up what I'd already been seeing about the brain. And now it just felt like this whole, I don't know, just this, this whole new lease on like how life works. That was amazing. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the, you can have a great morning and then your afternoon to not be so great. Uh, and that's okay. I think when you have that realization that you yeah. are just feeling essentially you're thinking in the moment there uh, without necessarily giving it any added weight to the external situation it is so freeing it, it, it allows you to let go of so much um, to, and to just be human and, and just to be and I think I'd like to just touch upon kind of the more spiritual aspect of this teaching of the three principles I'm, I'm by no means an expert on three principles it's something I'm familiar with and I'm probably something leaning into so for people who are who are listening and think well I understand the thought aspect yeah I'm feeling my thinking and I don't have to pay attention to thoughts and maybe some people have got like an appreciation of like a cognitive behavioral approach which may sort of have a synergy there when we talk about the spiritual aspect of three principles and your understanding what are we what are we speaking to there I think what we're speaking to there is, I mean, to me, the whole thing's very spiritual. So it, it looks at the fact, acknowledges the fact that there's a bigger intelligence that's like running life, 
And I haven't met many people, even like atheists and agnostics, like, you know, you, none of us made the sun come up today, like something else is power in this whole thing. Right. So that's a huge part of it. Like there is this, what they might call divine intelligence or divine mind, you know, that's, that's kind of powering everything. And I would even say like, you know, it's, it's living us. Our minds say, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you in a bad mood? You shouldn't have eaten this or we shouldn't have said that or whatever. Our, our machinery talks that way all the time. But we act as if we're the ones like walking ourselves through life. And I think if we, I mean, it's something for everyone to kind of explore on their own. But what I've seen around it is like, we're actually just being lived by this bigger intelligence so much more than it seems like we are. So, so there's that. <laughs> and then there's the fact, like you said, like this, this intelligence, it, it takes shape as thought and thought in these terms, isn't just that cognitive piece, right? It's not, it's not cognitive alone. It's not about dialogue or thoughts that we can identify. It's not conscious only. It's so much huger than all of that. To me, like how I would define thought is, is, our experience of life. So anything we feel, think, what's what we're not even aware that we're feeling and thinking, how our body's acting, that we get hungry and tired and all like all of that if we have an experience as human beings of something that's coming through through us as this this power that we can call thought. So so it, it's so far removed from um I can't believe I think this that's in the content way in the weeds and that's okay. Like we don't have to ignore that, but that's like at one level of things where we're looking is like, Oh, like if you were to get in an airplane and look down on earth and you see, Oh yeah, that's earth. <laughs> it's not sitting there on one little plot of land looking at a blade of grass. It's like this huge picture of, Oh my gosh, see how it all works together. And when we're seeing life, from that view, especially when we're kind of seeing ourselves and our experience from that view, there's just not so much to worry about. <laughs> you just don't get so caught up in your mood from nine o'clock till 11 o'clock, you know, like that stuff, it just, it just washes out a bit. And you see this bigger picture that we're human beings, spiritual beings, I would say, living this human life that's being lived by something bigger than us. And we're constantly full of thought that we can easily get in the in the weeds of but we can also pop out of that and see a different side i love that and when we talk about sort of spirituality often there's an assumption there must be some sort of spiritual practice or ritual based sort of being around that uh, does this involve having to meditate did you have to do any sort of different work around that or is, is there something else going on there yeah, there's actually, I mean, that that's, um, it throws a lot of people off because you're right, we're used to some practice or ritual to get there, but we're really, it's even bigger than that. We're really looking at the fact that we are there 24 seven. We, this is just how life works, how our experience works. It's what's true, but we don't see it because we're looking at that blade of grass. So, so the way that we start to experience it more in this tradition anyway, is, um, is really just by exploring it, by having conversation around it. Like when I work with people, there's no strategy, no tool, no technique. It's just a series of conversations where 
I'm trying to help them see that bigger picture of thing or, you know, have, we're just discussing it, not even trying to get them to see it really, but discussing it and looking at how it shows up more and more. And what happens is people start to have their own insights around it. They start to just see it, you know, in, in a way that's helpful for them um, in their own life. I think that really is often the beauty of, of this way of being, isn't it? It's not, there's some thing I have to do or some, objects I have to buy or some physical practice or meditative practice I have to do you to to quote Alan Watts maybe you are it you're famous for like the habit without changing habit without willpower which to me probably five or six years ago when I was looking at habits and changing that feels like a totally alien concept it's all about discipline and willpower so talk me through with this understanding how that habits can be changed without willpower. Yeah. So if we, if we start with this and maybe it's just an assumption for a lot of us right now, but if we kind of start with this understanding or assumption um, that, you know, that, that experience just is moving through us all the time. And by experience, again, thoughts, feelings, just human, like what we could say psychology, but thoughts, feelings, behaviors, like we're, we're not making that happen. It's just showing up and moving through us. And it's, and it's always in motion. It's always changing because it kind of has this form to it. And anything in the world is always in constant motion that has a feel to it. So it's there, it comes, it goes. It's not a problem. It's not something we have to pathologize. It's just, it's just there. And it's all moving through. When people start to see that around their experience, including their cravings, urges, uh, addictive tendencies, habitual thoughts, all of that kind of stuff, it's so hard to put into words because that's just such a different experience for everyone. But in general, I mean, there's just a softening that happens around it. There's a like, Oh, there you are. Okay. I don't need to fix you. You, I might not like you. You might not be my favorite feeling to have, but you're not a problem. You don't mean I'm, I'm addicted. You don't mean that I'm sick. You don't mean anything. You're just experienced moving through me. And if I do nothing, or even if I do something either way, you're going to keep on moving. I mean, none of us have been able to successfully hold a thought or feeling in place for very long. We just can't do it. We'll tell you that we can. <laughs> People will tell you, your clients, my clients will say, oh, no, I've been depressed for, for a decade and it never lifts and I always feel horrible. Well, no, like our, even in that, our feelings and our depressive thoughts and all of that, there's always movement, always change. So if we kind of start with that and, and as people see that that's how things work, you start to see how how it could be that even that habitual, addictive, painful stuff starts to show up, but it looks a little different. We're, we have a little distance from it. We aren't jumping in trying to fix it. And what that results in is that stuff not coming around quite so much. It moves faster and it just doesn't look like such a problem. Now, if you contrast that with like discipline and willpower, they're pretty much 180 opposite because willpower the way I used it anyway was like, I'm not going to think this. And if I feel that feeling, I'm going to do something else to, to chase it away. And I'm not going to be, behave this way, you know? So, and so it leaves you super vigilant to everything moving through you, the complete opposite of what we're talking about. 
And when we're super tight and on, on edge and on alert and vigilant to everything that moves through us, I mean, we just experience it so much more. It's like having all your muscles clenched and then having a pain. It's like amplified, right? And rather than being relaxed and having some pain. So that's kind of what we do with willpower. We decide what's allowed to move through and what's not. And what we're going to do if a thought shows up or a feeling or a tendency shows up, we're going to beat it into submission, which puts so much more emphasis on it, which a lot of time, again, it can work in the short term, but it's never a long-term strategy that's going to work. And a lot of times it even kind of makes things worse. Do you think, and this is just an idea I have, and I'd love to know your opinion on it. Do you think a lot of addiction is based around escaping how we feel in the moment because of thought we think if we drink more and we can kind of numb ourselves from that process and actually the coping mechanism is the addictive part rather than the actual, we're not, it's not the causative factor that we're addressing, we're always it's always a coping mechanism that is maladaptive as opposed to the cause. Would, would I think you agree 100%, 100%. That? Even when we don't realize that that's still what's going on, right? Is that on some level, we don't like, we're not okay with things as they are. So we have to do something or add something. And then exactly what you said, that thing that we add or drink or eat or whatever, it, it's, it looks, it does numb us from our experience a tiny bit. So it gets all the credit. It's like, oh, I need this. This helps me feel better. Even when we know better, you know what I mean? Like even when we can consciously say, this is ridiculous. Like, like I could say, like, I know eating a ton of food at once that I was not even hungry for did not make me feel better. It did make me feel better on some way Mm -hmm. because my mind would be telling me I needed it, you know? So it's, but yes, I think it's exactly what you said. Yeah, I certainly had that um, around cigarettes for, for many years. And I couldn't find a root cause as to why often a lot of people look for the root cause of something. Uh, and it was probably when I was a teenager trying to look cool, which if you can, anyone knew me as a teenager was the most ridiculous thing I've ever attempted. <laughs> cigarettes uh, weren't going to do it. Huh? Uh, it, it it's going to need a lot more than cigarettes, to be <laughs> honest with you, Amy, than, to make me look cool. Uh, but, um, and I saw people about it and um, it was always like, oh, why did you start smoking? I couldn't remember, but, um, and I knew it was bad for me and I felt bad. I felt shameful about it. And, um, and I think the realization is that when I had that, urge as a thought you know and it's often linked to sort of behavioral aspects but mm-hmm. i i felt that there was always just just being aware of the thought and the more i tried to push it that thought away the stickier it became mm-hmm. it was like when you i remember once trying to at school trying to get rid of a piece of chewing gum uh before the teacher saw me and i took it out of my hand and tried to roll it into a ball and it just stuck to my fingers and before i know it, i was in this sticky mess and I think that's very similar when we try and push away certain experiences or certain thoughts mm-hmm. um, through whatever techniques we use, even to, I think people get it muddled with things like meditation, like we're trying to push something away. But the more we do that, the worse it gets. And I think certainly just allowing thought, that experience to pass through us rather than get so caught up in it is key. Would you say this sort of principle can work in alignment with something like, say, the 12 steps? For addiction 
Um, I think it can because, and also people sometimes have a hard time. So, so um, there are many people out there in 12 steps. Um, I mean, I don't know how many, but I know of people that are aware of this understanding that find a lot of value in it and that also have been very much helped by 12 steps. So they're not like this, you know, totally at odds kind of thing. But the thing about what we're talking about, this bigger spiritual understanding of how life works is it doesn't, it doesn't tell you what you need to do at all. You know, it's like you're up in an airplane, just seeing life and you have this bigger, more expansive feel for how it's all already happening. Now that's going to impact your choices and your behaviors is going to help you feel more safe in your experience and all everything we've been talking about. And that's going to impact behavior, but there's zero dogma in it. There's zero, just that there's no strategy or anything to get there. It's just, it's just an understanding of how things are already always working. So in many ways, people can kind of have this bigger understanding and then it might still make a lot of sense to them. They still get a lot of value out of aspects of 12 steps where a lot of people, uh, just that I've seen anyway, start to get into this bigger spiritual understanding of the principles. And then they start to have a problem with 12 steps is around some of the dogma in that, you know, that you need to, or should work these steps that you are an addict, like that starts to not resonate with people, you know? So I don't know. I, I think, I think there's obviously 12 steps have helped a ton of people. Mm. And as you said, when we were started, when we started this, you know, the overall success rate's not the best in the world. It's, there's just so many people have gone through it that many have been helped, you know, but I think we can see, we see ways to kind of improve it. Um, so yeah, I don't think it has to be an either or. Mm. I, I certainly think I was quite shocked looking at the statistics of the success of 12 steps um, doesn't mean it has no value whatsoever, but that's, you know, in the Alcoholics Anonymous or the Narcotics Anonymous, those are the ones that we often turn to as a society. And it's like, mm, this is interesting. Maybe there is a different way. Maybe there yeah. is a, a better way. But um, yeah, it's certainly a very interesting thing. So with your school, how does that work? If someone wanted to come and learn sort of these principles, behind this? How, how would they do that? Yeah. So what, what we do in the school um, is it's a, it, I've created like a curriculum and it's very short lessons that really uh, kind of walk us through from the beginning, you know, I mean, a, a sort of starting with like, Hey, like very similar to how this conversation has gone and how a lot of conversations go mm -hmm. like, Hey, here's the, here's what we've been told. Here's the prevailing view, but what if, what if you're not broken? What if, yes, I know you've had anxiety for 15 years or you've been stuck in this addiction for 10 years, but what if there's another explanation, another way to see that, you know? And then it just kind of gently guides people through that, um, through those lessons and then through a lot of conversation. So I'm having two 90 minute calls each week with people with the group as they're going through it. And that's where so much happens because, um, you know, people are just opening their minds to see a different paradigm, a different side of things. And I don't have to do much at all. Like they're just having insights left and right. They're just seeing, oh my gosh, like that makes sense. And then they're coming to the group and sharing it. And then other people in the group kind of, you know, catch each other's insights and see new things. So it's really, um, 
it's really good for me because it doesn't, <laughs> it's not on me to do much, you know, it's <laughs> like you kind of create the container for it and people start seeing things and it spreads. It's really nice. Yeah, I, I can imagine that is nice because I, and also I can imagine it can be hard to to market because if you let go of strategies and techniques, um, you know, yes. my original kind of coach training was more NLP kind of hypnosis stuff. It was always, we had to kind of horseshoe a technique in there somewhere. We had to do an intervention of some description. Yeah. And I think there was always a danger there that we weren't really listening to the client. We were just trying to fit the client into the intervention as opposed to actually working with what we had in in conversation and I certainly found that when I was lost essentially with a client um, that when we just talked more stuff happened more interesting stuff happened rather than me trying to do something but it is a is I could imagine it's quite a tricky sell when you say well I'm not going to do anything per se we're just going to talk How'd you get around that? Yeah, it definitely is sometimes um, quite quite often, you know, like, how's this going to go? Like, what are we going to do? And I'm like, oh, you're just going to come hang out and talk and <laughs> see what happens. And they're like, no, you, but you heard me. I have a problem, right? <laughs> and um, I will say it's much easier now because there's a little bit of uh, word of mouth around mm. it. And I have lots of people, uh, you know, they're saying, hey, this helps. But yes, it's tough because our mind is so used to some kind of structure. And it's also what makes it also a really tough sell is I don't, I don't know really how it's going to go or even, this is crazy, but like even how it works. So often in the school, we just finished a course, it wrapped in the end of April. And, and then I have an ongoing community some people can come into. And some people came from that course into the bigger community to just keep exploring this. And they were like, okay, now, now that the six week course is over, tell us like what happened? (laughs) Like, why do I not want my nightly, you know, four glasses of wine anymore? Like really tell me what happened. And I can't really tell them what happened. All I can say is basically what we've been saying here, here is like, Hey, you were caught like the feeling of wanting that the stories your mind had around wanting all that wine, like you weren't even aware of half of that, but it looked really solid and real. And from that place, all you're going to do is drink the wine. Anyone would, but what's happened is you've opened your mind. And a lot of that stuff that looks so real and solid has kind of loosened up and just doesn't look the same. You feel better. You don't need to numb every night in the same way. And you don't want your wine. And even that I'm making up, you know what I mean? Like I'm putting words around, like even that is so much more of a mystery than how I'm saying it right now. And that is, that is very tough marketing wise. You're right. <laughs> Cause I'm like, basically all I can say is, Hey, join in this conversation and I can show you the data that lots of good stuff happens for people that I can't tell you how exactly. And I can't tell you when. Yeah. I, I think that speaks to often people's inability to cope with uncertainty. In life generally, I mean, that's what I think we have seen magnified in recent months with COVID and other things is life has always been uncertain, but um, now it's right up and front and central with us. But um, I think when it comes to coaching, are quite similar to you in the fact that I will just say, we'll have a conversation and see what happens. And everyone wants some structure, some formula, some gimmick, some, you know, all encompassing thing that you say something magical and everything changes. And obviously what you're saying is 
a new realization of how life works appears and that has all these like a domino effect in lots of areas of life but i don't know how that will show up for you exactly and what happens a lot is that the thing that people come in wanting to go away to have go away like their bad habit um they often see a lot of things around a lot of areas of life before they see a lot there, which makes perfect sense. So they'll come in week three and four and say, my relationship with my partner is totally different. Or those people at work don't annoy me in the same way or whatever. And maybe their habit hasn't budged that much yet. But I love when that happens because their habits, it's coming. It's, it's next in line. But the reason why sometimes the thing we want the most change around is like the last to go is because we have so much thinking around it. Mm. And in those other areas of life, they weren't there for the relationship to change. So they're totally open and relaxed. And then they just, you know, there was no resistance and no trying to control anything there. So it just happens easily. So that's kind of, kind of cool to see too, like to understand why it works that way, because the more we relax and the less we have on it, the more our nature is so made of health that it wants to go back there. Our nature never is like wanting or should be in struggle or addiction or like, it's just not our nature. Look at little kids, like little kids show us what our nature is. Mm -hmm. They feel feelings and they live life, but they are not bogged down in depression or, you know, they feel sad, but they aren't depressed and all of that. So that's kind of what wants to express itself, I think, through us. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think so. I think that we have got so caught up in thought, maybe sublimated into structures of what mental health is or isn't. And I, I think people don't realize that really psychology and mental health is still is a kind of a, if we talk in scientific terms, a pre-paradigm level, isn't it? That there are, I think, over a thousand psychotherapies now or 1300 if you put in cycle psycho spiritual and yet nothing's getting 100 percent results nothing they've all got different etiologies different methodologies of treatment and we're still i think none the wiser i think if you look on the bookshelves and amazon you know for happiness there's just thousands of books and yet clearly no one's got it down pat because there wouldn't be any more books yeah and i think we are often looking for things that we already are. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And that, that looking takes us further away, even though we're doing it innocently and in a well-meaning way, we want it so much. It's like, yeah, like if I'm looking for my pen and it's right here and I'm out here searching online for where's my pen, <laughs> I'm going to miss that the pen is right here. You know, it's, I think you're totally right, but we've just been so I don't know. I don't want to make it a whole like societal political kind of thing. Like we've just been told to go buy a solution, go buy it, go buy something. That'll probably fix it, you know, and it's so much closer than that. Mm. I think it's similar to that addiction thing. You know, I buy the book, I go on the course, I do the retreat and it's helpful for a bit and it feels yeah. like it's the right direction, but yeah. there's always the next thing. And I, I often see that uh, and I I've done it myself. Um, to be quite honest, where you think something works until it stops working and then it's, oh, well, maybe I need to do this spiritual practice okay. or read this book or sit with this particular teacher. And as always, and I see this constant searching and it's a whole industry based around, and I, I don't even think the industry is ill-intentioned. 
Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily an, a bad thing. It's just I think we have stepped away from the idea that we are enough as we are. Yeah. And it's taken me probably 10 years of personal development journey to realize that the journey was maybe just a thought as well. Yeah, I love that. It's like our, you know, our minds get going fast too. We just, we, we get going and it's, it takes a level of slowing down a bit to realize what you're saying, that we have it already. It's easier when our mind is already going this fast, it's easier to go out and gather more stuff. It just, that's mm. what's more natural. It's kind of what makes sense from that view. So yes, even, even our searching just becomes kind of a habit that matches the speed of our minds. But I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And it's, I don't know. I just find it so interesting how hard it is sometimes for people to, to see that, to like slow down and, or just even be open to the fact that they already have it. It's almost like they, you know, it, it feels more comfortable to say, no, I don't have it within me. I need it from out there. Even though that's never worked for any of us long-term, like you said, I don't know. There's something in that that's just appealing. It's like, if you say, no, you have it within you, like that, our mind will explode. Or we're like afraid to slow down and look enough to really kind of realize that that's the truth. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's easier almost to believe you are broken Mm-hmm. And there must be some sort of fix out there for you. Yeah. And I think a lot of people struggle to just fundamentally accept that they're fine. They just think they're not. And I, I, it sounds so simplistic. And I think that's the other issue that it almost sounds like you're being lazy by saying, yeah, you're fine. You just, you just don't think you are. And I think mm-hmm. we often mistake complexity for depth. So we're always looking for the really in-depth, right, you've got all your attachment issues, then you've got your mother wounds you need to sort out, then you've got this other other issue with your ego. And it's always, that's easy to believe that because it's then there's a, there's a pathway where actually there is no path to yourself because you're, as I say, you're already it. And I, I it took me ages to kind of even get a glimpse of that. And probably like you at different before you came to this realization there was an element of always just searching you know I've I've wasted so much time and money in my life it probably wasn't a waste because it led me back to this belief that actually what if I'm not broken maybe I was better as I was uh, without the searching (laughs) I I certainly would say that in my 20s I was probably a lot happier before I started the self-development journey um bizarrely it's a really really odd thing so as we come to the end of this interview and thank you so much for your time amy i really appreciate it i'm just going to ask some quick questions um so if there's one book you would recommend to everyone to read and i know that's a, a massively vague question because we're all different but what one book would you recommend oh geez i know it is so hard um i would say um, I would say either, I, I personally love Sydney Banks's books who kind of realized the three principles that we've been sort of talking about. I love The Enlightened Gardener, which is a story. Oh my gosh, now I just thought of a couple more of his, but anything by Sydney Banks. But I love The Enlightened Gardener because it's a, it's a parable. It's just this story of these psychologists. It's very much what we've been talking about that are in this traditional view of everything's complex and we have to dig in the past. And they meet this very simple man. He's a gardener 
and he shows them this really simple way. So I love that story. Um, Sid Banks also this the the story the book Dear Liza is also a great one. So either of those. Okay, and if you could just share one message, maybe on a billboard or in the form of a quote or a meme, which is obviously the the way to do everything nowadays. Um, what, what what message would that be? I think it's um, you aren't broken or I might say it in a nicer way, you are well, or, you know, everything is okay. I know people wouldn't understand that <laughs> the way we're yeah. talking about it, but some people might, if we could see the depth, like truly see every, you and everything you experience is okay. Huge. I, I think it's so simple, but so transformative. Yeah. And a message that needs to be, I think it needs to be heard more now than ever. Yeah. Dr. Amy Johnson, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for being the first guest on, on my podcast. I'm so honored. It's going to be a great podcast. You're a great interviewer and I love this conversation. Oh, stop it. You're making me blush. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. And um, I'll put all in the show notes where people can find your work, your website um, and your books, uh, which I definitely think are well worth a read. Um, really enjoyed reading both your books so thank you very much dr amy johnson thank you right so that's the first one done a huge thanks yet again to dr amy johnson for agreeing to be the guinea pig uh, and being the first guest on this podcast all the links to her work will be in the show notes and until next time i wish you all the very best <laughs>